Hello, and welcome to TNBS, the Thursday Night Bible Study. This study was held on August 19th, 2010. Tonight we continue our study in the book of Romans, looking at what some consider to be one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, the 8th chapter of Romans. So welcome again. This is TNBS, Volume 2, Session 17. Okay, Romans. Continue our study in Romans, picking it up with the 8th chapter tonight. Several of the people that I have read concerning the 8th chapter, and I have heard this comment from not only from them, from others as well. A lot of people consider the 8th chapter of Romans to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. In fact, one person said it was the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible. And when you get on down through like Romans 8.28, some people have even classified that as being the second greatest or the second most important verse in the Bible, just below John 3.16. Eighth chapter of Romans is a powerful chapter. It really is. A lot of good stuff in there. And so that's where we're going to pick it up tonight. Whether it's the greatest chapter in this book, I don't know. I kind of like the twelfth chapter myself. <laughs> uh, I've always liked Romans 12. But as far as Paul's theology and Paul in trying to make his point about the law and sin and what we have through Jesus Christ... Yeah, then I guess the 8th chapter is kind of the epitome, <laughs> the epitome of, of what his what point he's trying to make. Now, in the 6th chapter, Paul talks about being dead to sin. In the 7th chapter, Paul talks about being dead to, the law, dead to the law, dead to the consequences of the law. And he also talks about in the 7th chapter, toward the end of the 7th chapter, he talks about this conflict which he has between his two natures, between his old sinful nature and the new nature which he has in Jesus Christ because of, of accepting the sacrificial death of Christ. Now, in the eighth chapter, he's going to continue on. In fact, like I said, you remember when the scripture was when this letter was originally written, there were no chapter demarcations. Okay, so we're just continuing on because he's going to start off by saying in the eighth chapter, therefore, one of his famous therefore statements, which also occurs in the fifth chapter, the eighth chapter, and the twelfth chapter. So he's saying, therefore, in other words, I've told you all this, and I've taught this, and I've taught this. So therefore, this is now. The follow-up to that. Some people actually think that really what Paul is following up to is the seventh, the sixth verse of the seventh chapter. The other verses past the sixth verse were just kind of side comments which Paul made to further make his point last week. That we we talked about all that and about the law. So this is kind of following up on that. He's talked about death to sin and death to the law, and now he's going to talk about how we can deal with this conflict which we constantly face between our old nature and our new nature, our sinful nature and the new life we have in Christ. We are dead to sin, yes. We are dead to the consequences of the law, yes. But we do still sin, and we do still have those desires within us. In fact, last week Paul even talked about how the law kind of stimulates sin in our lives. They kind of like say, thou shalt not, and by human nature that's kind of like the very thing we wish to do since we were told not to do it. You see this a lot in children. <laughs> They oftentimes do the same thing. So that's what we're going to pick it up tonight in the 8th chapter. So now he's going to be talking about how to deal with this constant conflict. And it, in, we have a new identity in Christ. He's already made that point once, but he's going to make it even further here. We have a new identity in Christ that, that we need to, to flesh out or to live. And this a new identity should be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who should be in control of our lives? It is the Holy Spirit that is now in control of our lives rather than our sinful nature, rather than our sinful desires, rather than sin. 
it should be the Holy Spirit that is now in control of our life. This is what he's going to talk about tonight. Looking at verse 1, 8th chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. There is no longer condemnation. We are no longer found guilty because we are now in Christ. Regardless of what Satan may tell us. Now this is a point that Satan quite often uses, I think, to discourage us. When we do listen to our old sinful nature and give in to our old sinful nature and give in to temptations and do wind up doing something ungodly or, or against God's will, Satan awful time will bring that and throw it back in our face and say, and listen, look what you've done. You're not worthy of God. You're not worthy of His love. You're not worthy of His forgiveness. You are condemned. But Paul is making that point very clear to you. He says, we are not condemned. There is no longer any condemnation because we are a new creature in Christ. We now have this new life that we're living in the Spirit as opposed to living in sin. Look over in John, the Gospel of John in the 24th verse. And we read again this same John 5, 24. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not the 24th verse. Just 24th verse of John. I mean, you know, just pick any 24th, Rob. That's right. so John 5, 24. We read this from Christ. Therefore, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. Okay, we know that. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That's that same type of phrase which Paul is saying here. We're no longer into judgment. We are, we are no longer condemned. No longer are we condemned. Therefore, there is no longer condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, going back to Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Because we have received the Holy Spirit, which has set us free, has liberated us from the law of sin and death. That's why we're no longer condemned. Because we now have the Holy Spirit within us, which we have received by accepting what Christ did on the cross as payment for our sin. So, we, since we have received the Holy Spirit, we, that has set us free. That has liberated us from the power and the consequences of sin. That's basically what he's saying. Looking at verse 3, moving on. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, Paul has already made this point with the Jews quite heavily. Remember the Jews counting on the fact that they had the law, they were the chosen people, they had this special privilege, so they were okay. All they had to do was just live out the law. Well, Paul says you can't do that. That's not going to save you. You can't, you can't keep the law. You cannot earn your salvation. That's the whole point. It's one of the points... That's one of the things the law did. It showed people, it showed man that we cannot earn our salvation because we can't keep the law. That was one of the points he's been trying to make through this, these, these first seven chapters. He said the law could not give us this, could not release us from this condemnation. In fact, the law was the one that actually pointed out our condemnation. <coughs> Once we saw the requirements of God, looked at our lives and saw how far short we fell, Romans 3.23, then... That resulted in death. So the law is not, is not going to be the one that gives us the, that, that releases us from this condemnation. That's the point he's trying to make there. He said, but God did. God can. God, by through His Son, Jesus Christ, through the death, burial, and resurrection of a sinless man, paid the sacrifice, paid the penalty for our sin, and it's through that that Christ defeated the power of sin. This is what he's saying there. Look at verse 4. In order that the requirements of the law might be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, Paul is going to be talking a lot in these next verses, all the way down through about 17 of this chapter. He's going to be talking about the flesh and the Spirit. 
And when he says flesh, he's talking about our sinful nature. When he says spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay? He says, in order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled. What was the requirement of the law? Perfection. Holiness. Perfection. That was what the law required. You are to be holy. You are to be perfect. My Heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 40. 48. Matthew 5, 48. In Leviticus, over and over again, it talks about the law. And the people are called to be holy. Holy means what? Set apart. Separated unto. Sanctified. That's what the Israeli nation was. It was set apart unto God. And God called them to be a holy people. So, how is this Holy Spirit doing this? When we accept what Christ did on the cross as payment for our sins and enter into this relationship with Christ by faith, a relationship which was provided by grace, not because of anything we earned, not because of anything we deserved. Paul has already talked about all this back in the third chapter. When we do receive the Holy Spirit, we are then justified by God, declared not guilty, sanctified by God, redeemed by the death of Jesus Christ out of the slavery to sin, and we are, in essence, made holy. We are set apart unto God. So that is the process by which the law has been fulfilled. That's what he's saying here in this fourth verse. When he says, in order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled. Okay? Read on, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit to things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Those who are in Christ and who have received the Holy Spirit, i.e. us, should be thinking about godly things. Our, our, our mindset, and he's going to be talking about our mind, and I'm going to use the phrase mindset, which is basically what we set our minds upon, should be things that are godly. Those who are still living lives controlled by sin, they are thinking of sinful things. The mindset of satisfying and pleasing the flesh will produce the fruit of the flesh. Look at Galatians 5, 16. Galatians 5, that should key something in your mind already. What is that? Fruit of the Spirit, Fruit of the Spirit right. But if you back up to verse 16, and we talked about this last week, actually. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And Paul talked about that last week. Remember, he said his mind wants to follow Christ, but his body wants to follow sin. The things that I desire not to do, those things I do. It says the same thing here in Galatians. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. They are in opposition. And in the 8th chapter of Romans, he's going to continue that same theme. Because he talks about the flesh and the Spirit as being in opposition to each other. Okay? In Romans 8, Five, he says, for those who according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those according to the Spirit set their minds or have the mindset of the Spirit. And over in Galatians, the fifth chapter, he tells what those things are. Verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are, and he goes through and spells out all this litany of, of sinful, ungodly, evil things, much like he did in the first chapter of Romans. 
when he said there, when people no longer acknowledged God as being God, when they turned away from God and, and turned to themselves as their own gods, and they lived to satisfy themselves, then they did all these things. He says that over in the first chapter of Romans. And now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dismissions, defactions. This may be a longer list in Romans. In Romans, I think it was 23 he names. I haven't counted these. But anyway, just as I have forewarned you, Galatians 5.21, that you who practice such things or do not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 22, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control against those things in the law. So this is what Paul is saying back over in Romans now, okay? Going back to Romans, Romans 8.5. And he says, if they have the mindset of the, of the flesh, then they carry out the things of the flesh. They have the fruit of the flesh which Paul lists over in Galatians 5.19 and over in the first chapter of Romans. But he says they have the mindset of the Spirit, then they do the things of the Spirit, or that is the fruit that is producing them, or the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. Okay, sin results in death. We know that. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. Romans, Romans 8.7 Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you have the mindset of the flesh to where you are trying to satisfy your own sinful desires, pleasing to yourself, selfishly trying to please yourself, you cannot please God. Because basically you're worshiping yourself. what you're doing. This is what he's saying here. The mind who is set on the flesh cannot please God. It just can't. Because that is a mind that is involving itself in sin and that God can have no part of that. So, this is the, that's what he says in 7 and 8. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Look back up again at verse 6. Huh? That's point one of Calvinism. That's point one of Calvinism. The depravity of mankind, right? Total depravity. Total depravity. We can't do it. Our righteousness compared to the righteousness of God is as filthy rags. Okay. For the mindset, verse 6. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. I find it interesting. In fact, I think it's important to notice that Paul equates peace with a mind who is set on the Spirit, not on the flesh. Peace, contentment, satisfaction can only come from a spiritual mindset. Ultimate peace, satisfaction, and contentment can only come from a spiritual mindset. It is one of the great lies of Satan, I think, that sin will satisfy. Now, sin may satisfy temporarily. And yeah, I've heard a lot of people say, sin is fun. And well, it can be. Temporarily. But I think it's a lot like a drug. I really do. I think once you yield into a particular temptation, and that becomes a habit that you constantly yield into, I think it loses some of its fun, and you want more, and it goes to to it. And I hate to use this term; it's almost like one sin leads to greater and greater sin. If there is such a thing as greater sin, maybe there's greater depravity. I don't know, but <laughs> I don't know about greater sin. But that's one of the temptations of Satan: is that sin will satisfy. And it won't. You know, there's that old phrase about that God-sized hole in our spirits, you know? There's a lot of truth in that. There really is. And Paul talks about that in Romans 1.16. 
God has displayed His power and majesty that, that, all, that men are without excuse, you know? And, the, and He says here in verse 6 that the, the mind that is set on the Spirit, that is the one that will find peace. Not the mind that is set on the flesh. Because the mind set on the flesh leads to death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. And he's, all, he's talked about back up in also one of the benefits uh, of being justified by faith, he says in, in Romans 5.1, is the fact that we have peace with God. We're no longer in animosity with God. We're no longer an enemy of God. We have this peace with God. But that comes from the mindset of the Spirit that is set on spiritual things, not on fleshly things. Okay. Yeah, like I said, sin may satisfy may give us pleasure for a while, but I think it would ultimately lead to, to desire for more and more sin. Verse 9, However, you are, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now he's talking about the, the church at Rome. He says, But now you're not of the flesh, you're of the Spirit, if indeed, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. Capital H, does not belong to God. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. We are not of the flesh. We who have entered into this relationship with Jesus Christ, we who have been justified, redeemed, and sanctified, and declared holy <laughs> by God through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice which He made, we are not of the flesh anymore. We're not, we should not have the mindset of the flesh. This is the whole point Paul is making. We're of the Spirit. We do not have a fleshly mindset. We are of the Spirit who dwells, who lives, who abides in us, as he says there. But you're not of the flesh. If, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, uh, the Greek word there may, basically means house, home, to make, to make residence with us. If the Spirit is one that dwells in us, then we're not of the, we're not of the flesh anymore. We are of the Spirit. For we belong to Christ. And if the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, through our though our bodies are dead because of sin, our spirits are alive. And the power that raised Christ from the dead will one day also raise our bodies. Now, our bodies are decaying. We know that. And Paul is making the point here that going all the way back to Adam, when Adam sinned, he brought death into the world. He brought spiritual death. He brought physical death into the world. He says, so our bodies will decay and die. But our spirits are alive in Christ because we have the Holy Spirit within us. He says, and eventually even our bodies are going to be resurrected. Don't want to get into discussion of that. <laughs> Don't understand that. I just I, I believe it. I believe we will have a bodily resurrection someday. What are those bodies going to look like? Don't know. Will I have a choice between one that's 60 years old or one that's 30 years old? I hope so. Don't know, you know. But anyway, what kind of bodies are we going to have? I don't know. But we are, I do believe in a, in a physical bodily resurrection someday, which, he, which is the point he's making here. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. As he says in verse 11. Okay, now if the Spirit of God lives in us, we will be controlled by the Spirit. We should be controlled by the Spirit. Now, this does not mean that we live a perfect life. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. As Rob 
thumb flies across his keyboard. <laughs> First Thessalonians 5.19 Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Or a better translation, a more modernized word would be smother. So, we are living with the Holy Spirit within us and we, we live in, in, in with this God, the Spirit of God living in us but and we should be controlled by the Spirit but it doesn't mean that we don't sometimes quench the Spirit as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. That doesn't mean that we sometimes, we sometimes don't grieve the Spirit. You look at Ephesians 4.30. Paul mentions that. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Nor does it mean that we will no longer sin because we certainly will. But it does mean that if we have the Spirit dwelling in us then we should be living our lives in such a manner that demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is in control. In other words... If we have the Holy Spirit, if we have this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if we have been justified, redeemed, sanctified, made holy, if we have the Holy Spirit who is dwelling within us, then He should be in control. And our mind should be set on spiritual things. Our mind should be set on trying to satisfy our spiritual desires, not our sinful desires. And if He's in control, then our lives should be demonstrating that. There should be fruits of the Holy Spirit within us. Are we perfect? No. Yes, we can still smother the Holy Spirit, as it says in the First Thessalonians. Yes, we can still deny the Holy Spirit. Yes, we can still do all those things, but our lives should still show, by some means, that the Holy Spirit is in control. There should be some demonstration of the Holy Spirit being in control. Our lives should be filled more with the fruits of the Spirit than the fruits of the flesh. You should be able to flip over to Galatians 5.22 and find more characteristics that fit your life than Galatians 5.19 and, and 20. This is what Paul is saying. However, verse 9 of Romans 8, you are not in the flesh and if Christ is in you, the body is dead. Okay? This is what his point he's trying to make. But if the Holy Spirit is in control, there should be some evidence of it in our lives. Okay. Read it on. Verse 12. 8th chapter. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are not no longer... We are not no longer... That's a double negative, isn't it? We are not no longer, so then we are longer. We are, <laughs> we are no longer obligated to sin. This is what the point he's trying to make here. Our obligation is not to our flesh. Our obligation is not to satisfy our fleshly needs, our sinful needs. Remember, he's using fleshly needs, flesh here to represent our sinful nature. We are not obligated to satisfy that. We are now obligated or subjugated or subject to Live by the Holy Spirit, putting to death the deeds of sin. <coughs> That's the point he's making there in, in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And it's the Spirit that gives us the ability and the power to do this. 
Okay, it is the spirit of this, the Holy Spirit dwelling with us. It is, it is the, the presence of God within our lives that gives us the ability to resist temptation, that gives us the ability to put to death or to deny our sinful desires. It is by the strength of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Same power to raise Christ from the dead. Pretty powerful stuff. That is how we can do that. Verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, the Jews thought themselves to be the children of God because they were the chosen race. Paul is carrying that a little bit further here. He's saying it's not the Jew who was born of Abraham. It is the Jew who has entered into this relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. It is the Gentile who has entered into this relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. Those are the sons of God. Those are the ones who are the, those who have the mindset of the Spirit. All that he's talked about previously. Those who are living by the Spirit. Those who are living by the Holy Spirit's power. Those who have their mindset on spiritual things. Those are the ones that are the sons of God. The sons of God. Therefore, we no longer have the fear of death, but we are adopted into the family of God. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear against slavery to sin, but you have received a spirit of adoption by sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. By the Holy Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out, Daddy, as the literal translation is. Because we're sons of God. We now have peace with God because of our faith. Because we have been justified. Because we have been forgiven for our sins. Then we can enter this relationship with the Almighty God. We have peace with God. We're no longer in enmity with God. We're actually His sons. We are His children. He is our Father. Yes, He is our God. Yes, He is Creator. Yes, He is Lord. But He's also our Father. We are His sons. Half-brothers to Christ, if you want to look at it that way, you know? Or sisters. (laughs) We are the sons of God. Because of this relationship. And the Spirit Himself, verse 16, bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Now that brings special privileges. Being a child of God, we are also heirs of God. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ, Paul says in verse 17. Joint heirs with Jesus. What has Christ inherited from His Father? He has inherited the glory of His Father. We are joint heirs with that. We also can inherit the glory of the Father. Verse 17, And if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him in, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Paul has already made the point that when he's talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ represented the baptism and how we were baptized with Him, and he says, just as Christ was raised from the dead into everlasting life, so we are raised from the death of sin into everlasting life. Just as God saved Christ into eternal life then, from the dead, then He has saved us. Since Christ has conquered death, then we have conquered death. Since Christ has eternal life, we have eternal life. Since Christ is the Son of God, we are sons of God. But, Paul says, there's a negative side to that if you want to look at it that way. We are joint heirs with Christ, yes. But if we're going to share in His glory, the glory which Christ received from obedience to His Father, but that glory came through great suffering on the cross. He says, so if we're going to share in the glory, we've got to share in the suffering. One comes with the other. 
if we're going to be joint heirs with Christ and sons of God, and we want to be associated with Christ in His resurrection, in His eternal life, in His conquering of death, in His power, and in His glory, then we're also going to have to be associated with Christ in His suffering. God never promised us a bed of roses. He never promised us an easy life. He never promised us that once you accept Him, everything is just smooth sailing from then on. All God promises is that we have the justification from our sins. We are His children. We are heirs of His glory. Joint heirs with Christ. But we join Him in suffering as well. He never promised us it would be easy. But He does promise us it would be worth it. So, yes, we are in the position. Faith in Jesus Christ gave us a peace. It gave us a new position. It gave us a new life. A life that is now being controlled by the Holy Spirit. A life that is lived in obedience to and obligation to our Father God, our Daddy. And we have the benefits of that. Not only the eternal benefits of forgiveness and eternal life, but we also have the present benefits of His, His power and His peace and His glory and His joy and His presence in our lives every day. His presence within us every day. But it also comes with suffering. But all that presence and power and glory and peace doesn't leave us in the midst of our suffering, just as it never left Christ. Join heirs with Christ in receiving His glory, but join heirs with Christ in receiving His suffering. And Paul is going to talk more about that next week. Verse 18. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank You. Thank You, Lord, for, for, for what You've got, what we have taught Paul to say here. Yeah, the way he's expressing this, Lord, it just makes, it makes good sense to me anyway. Because I see in myself, Father, how many times I'm, I have the mindset of the flesh versus the mindset of the Spirit. But it's so good to know, Lord, that when I do quench the Spirit, when I do seek to satisfy my sinful nature, when I do basically screw up, Your grace and Your mercy and Your love is still there. Father, may my goal in my life be to have more of the mind of the Spirit and the mind set on spiritual things. Thank You for Your forgiveness, but thank You, Father, for Your presence and Your power that can allow me to live every day for You. Thank you, Father. For this is my prayer in and through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, my Savior, and my Lord, and my very bestest friend. Amen and amen. 
This is David Keel, and I want to thank you for joining us tonight for our study. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please send me an email. My address is davidlkeel at gmail.com. Next week we will continue our study in the 8th chapter of Romans, and I hope you'll be able to join us then. Until then, it is my prayer that each and every day we may indeed have the mindset of the Spirit. God bless you.